come now to oral questions. Speaker. Yes. I would like to make no, a personal... Are you calling a point of order? I'd like to make a personal explanation regarding my answers. Is there any objection to that course of action? There appears to be none. I'd like to make a personal statement regarding a, my answers as Associate Minister of Health to oral questions on the 30th of January 2024. I'm speaking specifically to the questions that asked if I was being truthful when I denied to the media that I had requested advice on freezing tobacco excise tax. On review of my response, I acknowledge that there is confusion arising from my understanding of the differentiation between seeking specific advice and accepting advice being offered. I had no intention of misleading the House and I apologise for any confusion. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Generally speaking, when a minister is correcting a, an answer they have given, they state what the incorrect answer was and what the correct answer was. I don't think anyone in this House would be any the wiser as to exactly what it is the minister's just corrected. Uh, well, that's not quite true, because I'm very wise on these things, and um, right up with it, as it happens. And if you think back to the way in which uh, an earlier apology was given in this House, uh, for a matter that was potentially a matter of privilege, and we still don't know what, where this ends up, uh, then uh, you would see that a, a similar course of action was, was taken, with no objection. A point of order, the Honourable right Honourable Chris Hipkins. The, the, I re recall the questions asked quite clearly. The Minister was repeatedly asked whether she had requested advice, and she repeatedly said no. Is her correction now saying that she did ask for that advice? If so, she should say that. Uh, I don't believe that is what has just been said, but I'll obviously have to read it when it uh, comes out in Hansard. Uh, what I do know is that uh, I do know what the complaint was, and I do know what the response was. And uh, clearly this is still a matter under consideration. Thank you very much. Can we now go to oral questions? The first in the name of Greg Fleming. My question is to the Minister of Finance. What recent reports has she seen on New Zealand's economic and fiscal response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Mr Speaker. Honourable Nicola Willis. I've seen a report delivered to the New Zealand Economics Forum by the Secretary to the Treasury in which she highlighted that effective fiscal stimulus in response to crises should be, quote, temporary, targeted and timely. She goes on to note in the speech that the bigger concern is the trajectory of spending and that in New Zealand, operating expenditure has continued to exceed revenue on an ongoing basis, stating, quote, this was the case even through a period in which the economy was overheating and unemployment was at generational lows, normally a time when we expect fiscal policy to be at its tightest. Supplementary. What impact has government fiscal policy had on interest rates? Well, Mr Speaker, the same speech goes on to note uh, that fiscal policy has had an impact on inflation, with the Secretary to the Treasury noting, quote, our assessment is that fiscal policy has contributed to interest rates being higher than otherwise. And of course, Mr Speaker, that has an impact on every single family with a mortgage, every person with a credit card debt, every small business trying to repay a loan. High interest rates hurt, and what we know 
is that loose fiscal policy has contributed to them being higher than they might otherwise have been. Why should New Zealanders be concerned about the structural fiscal deficit facing the government? Well, Mr Speaker, structural deficits uh, ultimately uh, have a fiscal impact, which means that they shift costs to future generations. They ultimately reduce government's ability to provide public services, and they add considerably to debt servicing costs. This year, the government is forecast to spend $8.8 billion just servicing New Zealand's debt. That sum is more than the government spent combined on secondary schools, police and early childhood education last year. What action is the government taking to bring spending back under control? Mr Speaker, the coalition government has started an ongoing fiscal sustainability programme to embed a culture of responsible spending across government. The first step of this programme is an initial baseline savings exercise for government agencies designed to find about $1.5 billion per annum in savings to deliver on our policy commitments and fund critical cost pressures. Mr Speaker, this situation brings to mind a cartoon that the Honourable Grant Robertson once shared with me in question time. I would like to congratulate him on his foresight and wish him all the best for his future. Supplementary, uh, Honourable Barbara Edmonds. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Is it the Minister's assessment that the wage subsidy, the small business cash flow loan scheme and other policies to support businesses during the COVID pandemic is redundant and she wouldn't have supported businesses to hold on to their employees during the pandemic? Well, Mr Speaker, I've just outlined in the answers to my previous questions. I concur with the view of the Secretary of the Treasury, which is that targeted and timely responses were warranted during the COVID epidemic. The real challenge that New Zealand is now facing is that the spending never got unwound and continued at very elevated levels without driving the kind of value and services that New Zealanders expect and while seeing them endure a cost of living crisis in which they had far less money to spend in their take-home pay. I'm now to question number two, the owner of Debbie Nauru Wapaka. Tēnā uh, my question is to the Prime Minister. Does he stand by all of his government statements and policies? Uh, yes, in the context they were given. Supplementary. What will he do to protect the Takatapui community from increased discrimination as a result of his government's policies, such as their policy to ban transgender athletes from competing in publicly funded sports? Uh, that is not our policy. What we want to make sure is that sports balance fairness and inclusion. Supplementary. What solutions will be put in place to address Māori health inequities after his government dismantles the Māori Health Authority? Well, we want to work hard to improve Māori health outcomes. We're going to work with local iwi in the spirit of localism and devolution to design solutions to improve outcomes locally. We just don't believe that the way to go about that is building a massive health central bureaucracy here in Wellington. Supplementary. What actions is his government taking to push for a sustainable ceasefire in Palestine? Uh, we've been calling for a cessation of hostilities since October last year. Supplementary. 
How bad is the, is the Prime Minister willing to allow things to get before his government cuts diplomatic ties and sanctions Israel for war crimes against Palestinian civilians? Um, I reject the assertion in that question. That is not something we're interested in. Supplementary, uh, close, Robert. Does he stand by the statement of Christopher Luxon, quote, do not be a climate denier, do not be a climate minimalist, this is real, give it up, end quote. And if so, why did his State of the Nation speech this weekend mention climate action precisely zero times? Uh, yes, I do, and I disagree with you. We talked a lot about actually how we speed up the, the fast-track consenting process so we can get more renewable energy in place, whether that be geothermal, solar. Uh, we want to make sure we've got renewable electricity in place so we can get double the amount of renewable electricity and get this country moving towards its climate goals. All right, we come to question number three in the name of the Right Honourable Christopher Hipkins. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister, does he stand by all of his government's statements and actions? Uh, yes, I do, and in particular I stand by my statement from the weekend where I said I haven't met a single young Kiwi whose ambition, creativity and spark would be best served by a life on a benefit. And that is why I'm very proud to stand by this government's actions to address the legacy of welfare dependency that the previous Labor government was all too happy to grow. Uh, and before I take any more questions, can I just do acknowledge Grant Robertson's announcement of his retirement today, uh, thank him for his service in this place in Parliament and also in Government, and wish him well for the future. Is Louise Upston correct that changes to benefit indexation will save the government $669.5 million through to 2027-28? Uh, well, it depends very strongly on what the forecast projections are going forward. As you know, in your previous government, uh, there was a period where actually inflation was running well ahead of wage increases. As a result, that's why we've moved it back to make sure we index uh, benefits to inflation so that people are protected from their purchasing power, be eroded by inflation. What point of order, Mr Speaker? I asked him whether the Minister was correct or not, or whether he agreed with the Minister or not. He has given a whole lot of other information, but he hasn't actually answered whether or not he agrees with the Minister. Well, I thought he reasonably did, but um, ask the question again at no cost to your supplementary list. Thank you. Is Louise Upston correct that changes to benefit indexation will save the Government $669.5 million through to 2027-28? It all depends on the forecast going forward, but what I'd say to you is indexing benefits going forward, indexing benefits to inflation, that's the right way to go. Supplementary question. Was Cabinet made aware of the fact that a disabled Kiwi on the supported living payment would lose $2,300 a year by 2028 thanks to changes to benefit indexations? If not, why not? We're making sure that benefits are adjusted by the amount of inflation so that the purchasing power of those beneficiaries is not eroded. That is the way we're managing it going forward. And we think that's the right approach. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Yep. That didn't answer the question. Well, did, so addressing it. Now, no, no, I disagree with you because I think um, while you ask a question, you can't guarantee what the answer is. But if the question was, is, and I'm sorry, I was told not to get into explaining these things, but... Um, uh, so I won't explain it. I'll just say, ask it again, and we'll probably get the Thank same you. answer that would be quite acceptable. Was Cabinet made aware of the fact that a disabled Kiwi on the supported living payment would lose $2,300 a year by 2028 thanks to changes to benefit indexations? If not, why not? Uh, they're not losing anything. We're adjusting benefits and indexing benefits to inflation. So the purchasing power of a beneficiary maintains irrespective of what happens with inflation. 
if if people aren't going to lose anything because of their changes to benefit indexations, how is the government saving $669.5 million? They're not losing anything because we're adjusting benefits by the amount of inflation. Supplementary. Why did he state at his press conference yesterday that someone undergoing cancer treatment could be forced to work 10 hours a week? What I'd say to you is we are determined to make sure that people who are on a job seeker benefit are upholding their obligations. There is a case-by-case basis. There will be valid reasons for why people may or may not meet their obligations. But people who actually are receiving health uh, on a health uh, ticket under the job seeker benefit, they actually also want to work in many cases. We are supporting people into work. Mr Speaker, what's the total estimated cost of the coalition agreement to restore mortgage interest deductibility for rental properties, including the backdating that they have agreed to? Uh, that information will be available in the budget in May. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. Mr Speaker, what does it say about his government's priorities that their first major financial decisions involve backdating tax breaks for landlords, increasing government revenue from people smoking, and cutting benefits for the lowest income New Zealanders. Well, I'll tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to do what that government did, which was to increase the number of people on the job seeker benefit by 70,000 people. Increased it by 58%, took the number of people, sanctions and obligations down by 57%. We care about young people on a benefit. We want to get people from welfare into work. On that basis, that would exclude the Deputy Leader of the, Nash, of the Labour Party from running for the Leader of the Labour Party one day down the road. Point of order, Honourable Winston Peters. Mr. Speaker, I know that the opposition is having difficulty reorganising itself, but every member from that front bench over there shouting is surely not the way to image this Parliament. We don't mind an objection; we welcome it. But that sort of yeah, screaming, no. mindless leadership mess is not what Parliament should look like. Well, you might you might say that, but I was uh, actually also looking over this side because the Prime Minister was speaking. Uh, and there was a, a considerable amount of support for what he was being saying, loudly coming from that side. So I think it's one all. Question number four, Todd Stevenson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, my question is to the Associate Minister of Health, Pharmac, and asks, what benefits, if any, can New Zealanders expect to see from the misuse of drugs pseudoethadrine amendment bill? Mr Speaker. Uh, New Zealanders can indeed expect great benefits from the legalisation of pseudoephedrine cough and cold treatments. The most obvious is that when people get sick they will be able to get stuff that works, not what is currently available, that many people regard as being little better than a placebo. In addition to that, Mr Speaker, it shows we have a government that when a law doesn't work, uh, we actually get rid of it. It shows we have a government that is prepared to try and make life better and easier for New Zealanders rather than constantly coming up with obstructions That's and objections. Good. Supplementary? Yep. <laughs> Why does the government think this law needs to be changed? Mr Speaker, the law uh, was put in place with the intention of stopping gangs uh, supplying methamphetamine. Unfortunately, the law did not succeed, and the evidence for that is that since pseudoephedrine cough and cold medicine has been denied from New Zealanders through an effective ban, uh, the price of P has actually gone down, the availability has gone up, and the volume consumed uh, has gone up. 
Uh, the law simply has not worked, and therefore we're getting rid of a law that doesn't work so that life can be better and easier for New Zealanders, including getting better cough and cold medication. Supplementary. Uh, Mr Stevenson. Thank you. Mr Speaker. Will the government be keeping in place safeguards um, for the sale and supply of pseudoethagen? Yes, uh, Mr Speaker, indeed. Uh, the law change is a very simple one. Uh, it is changing uh, pseudoephedrine from being a Class B drug uh, to a Class C drug. Uh, there will still be significant restrictions around the importation, storage and possession uh, of pseudoephedrine within New Zealand. Uh, there will also be a change in the medicines regulations uh, so that pseudoephedrine goes from being a prescription-only drug to a restricted uh, pharmaceutical. That means that while you will not need a prescription from a GP, uh, you will have to buy it directly from a pharmacist. Uh, these restrictions are designed to make sure that there are not negative spillovers uh, from giving everyday New Zealanders the convenience of getting some decent cough and cold meds. Supplementary. Supplementary. Uh, Todd Stevens. When will pseudoephedrine be back on the shelves in New Zealand providing effective treatments for Kiwis? Uh, well, Mr Speaker, the exact timing uh, depends on two things. First, uh, the Parliament changing the law and the government uh, making sure that the regulations are in place and MedSafe is prepared uh, to give the approvals to the products their approvals have lapsed since they were effectively banned over a decade ago. Second, uh, it will depend on pharmaceutical companies making applications to MedSafe and being ready to sell the pharmaceuticals that people need uh, by this winter when the most demand is in place. Uh, we've had official advice that that may not take place, the full availability, until 2025. But I can tell you that MedSafe, myself and everyone on the government side of this operation are doing everything we can to make sure that good cold and flu meds are on the shelves by this winter when yep. people need them. Good. We have question number five in the name of the Honourable Carmel Cipollone. Mr Speaker, to the Minister for Social Development and Employment, what reports has she received, if any, advising her of the possible child poverty impacts of indexing benefits to inflation rather than wages? Honourable Louise Upson. Mr Speaker, the publicly available report states that preliminary modelling shows indexing benefits to inflation in isolation as a policy in the absence of any other government policy interventions before 2028 may increase the number of children captured by the before housing cost moving line measure and after housing cost fixed line measures of child poverty by 7,000. The government will, however, make other policy interventions before 2028, such as delivering tax relief and stopping petrol tax hikes that will significantly help families with children in modest, modest to low-income households, who we know have been doing it particularly tough during the cost-of-living crisis. Mr Speaker, given that net average wage growth for the purposes of annual general adjustments is now due to outstrip inflation this year, have the reports she's received updated the forecast child poverty figures? Uh, Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker um, we haven't received updated child poverty figures. Every um, policy and consideration that we will be making in the months ahead uh, will. But as I have answered in my primary question, it is not one policy intervention on its own 
that will support us as a country to lift more children out of poverty. It will be a collection of policies that our government is committed to taking. Mr Speaker, do any of her reports highlight the disproportionate child poverty impact on disabled children, given that disabled children or children living with a disabled adult are more likely to live in households where an adult is on benefit? Mr Speaker, I, I don't think it would be um, a surprise to this House that there are certain groups uh, where there is a higher risk of children living in poverty. Uh, and our government is focused on uh, those, whether it is Pacifica, Māori uh, and, and, and disabled, um, that we will of course take into consideration uh, with any policies that we are putting in place to reduce child poverty. Mr Speaker, do any of the reports she has received highlight the disproportionate poverty impact on sole mothers and their children, given that 80 per cent of sole parent benefit recipients are women? Absolutely, and what this government won't do is allow the number of children and benefit dependent homes to grow by 45,000 like that government did. Mr Speaker, are MSD figures correct that indexing benefits to wage inflation had moved over 5,000 children out of poverty? And if yes, why is she hell-bent on making changes that increase rather than decrease the number of New Zealand children living in poverty? Uh, Mr Speaker, this side of the House is really committed to reducing the number of children living in child poverty. We know there's not one silver bullet. It's not one policy on its own that will make a difference. Uh, addressing the cost of living crisis, providing tax relief and getting on top of ridiculous uh, tax hikes for petrol are very practical things that will help low and middle income families as well as those who are receiving benefits. Question number six in the name of Dana Kirkpatrick. Mr Speaker, my, my question is to the Minister of Health. What recent announcements has the Minister made in relation to improving access to breast cancer screening for New Zealand women? Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, last week the Government took its first steps towards delivering on our promise to extend free breast cancer screening to women aged 70 to 74. Breast cancer is the most common cancer amongst New Zealand women, and that's why the Government prioritised this crucial initiative in our 100-day plan. I'd like to thank the Breast Cancer Foundation for their continued advocacy in this area. Supplementary. What are the next steps for the extension of breast cancer screening services? Mr Speaker, there is a lot of work to be done in terms of preparation. We need to grow our workforce and support them with the infrastructure required to expand our screening services. Health New Zealand is also working through a process to ready the whole health system for the additional women that will take up screening each year and for those who will sadly require treatment. We are ambitious to advance this as soon as possible. What benefits does he anticipate from extending the age for breast cancer screening? Mr Speaker, I am advised that once the program is fully implemented, the extension will mean that women will become eligible for two to three extra mammograms on average. This means around 120,000 additional women will be eligible for screening every two years. Catching more cancers early means better treatment outcomes. The extension could potentially save 65 lives per year. However, on our current settings, that relates to 22 lives saved. That's not just 22 women, but also their family, friends and loved ones who won't have to endure the emotional impact of cancer. Quite right. Supplementary. What feedback has the Minister received on this announcement? Mr Speaker, I have received lots of feedback regarding this announcement. The Chair of the Breast Cancer Foundation, Justine Smith, has said that, quote, We've been asking for the breast cancer screening age to be raised to 74 for the past eight years, so it's fantastic to see work is finally underway on this." Unquote. This support has been echoed by many members of the public and health professionals. 
Question number seven, in the name of the Honourable Dr. Ashaviru. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Health and asks, does he stand by his statement that there is a health workforce crisis? And does he accept the estimates of health workforce shortages Te Whatuora published in July 2023 as an accurate reflection of the shortages at the time they were published? Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Yes, I stand by my statement that there is a workforce crisis, as I've said repeatedly for some time. To the second part of the question, yes, particularly where the document states that, quote, there has been pressure on our health workforce which needs to lift. We have heard this message clearly from our workforce, unquote. I have heard that message also. What urgent actions will he take to address workforce shortages that will have an impact this year? Mr Speaker, uh, we're very encouraged by the increase in general practice registrars who actually start either this week or next week, which are, I understand is the largest cohort of general practice registrars, which will then feed through into the general practice network. So very pleased with that. Would, it, would he like to congratulate the government that implemented that? Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> is it correct that after gaining office, talking up a crisis, he did not receive a briefing on the health workforce from Te Whatuora in his first two months in office. Oh, Mr Speaker, I would need to see the exact dates that I've received briefings, but I've made it very clear uh, to Health New Zealand and to the Ministry of Health that health workforce is our number one priority, and they clearly have that in their headlights. Question number eight, in the name of Ricardo Mendes March. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is Hang to the right. Minister... We're, we're. Too much talking while the question is being asked. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Social Development and Employment and asks, how many job secret beneficiaries, if any, got, get jobs as a direct result of attending work seminars they are required to attend to avoid benefit sanctions? Mr. Speaker. Honourable Louise Upson. The Ministry of Social Development cannot provide this exact measure as the member was told by the previous government. This new coalition government is not content to allow New Zealanders to languish on the job seeker benefit without proactive support or checking in on their progress to find work. We want them to experience the independence and opportunities that come from work. That's why yesterday I announced 2,500 additional people will receive greater face-to-face -face support through regular check-ins. How can she be confident then that these work seminars support people into employment when MSD does not measure any outcomes after attending seminars and people risk losing their benefit if they do not engage with them? Uh, Mr Speaker, it's not that the outcomes aren't measured, it's just that they are not. not accumulated across every single uh, beneficiary. So if we look at a recent seminar in the top of the South Island, uh, 82 Kiwi job seekers uh, turned up to that seminar. 64 secured interviews. Had they not been there, they would have not taken that very important step of securing an interview that for some would have led to employment. What outcomes then are measured as a direct result of people attending those work seminars? The, the, the outcome is just that it's not collated as, a, as an entire figure. What we do know, uh, and a, a recent one that I attended in Christchurch, uh, showed a number of people who are getting additional support, uh, whether it is being connected to training opportunities, in this instance through uh, Te Pukenga, 
employers come along to those work seminars to find staff and find employees. Uh, and another business that I visited on the same day in Christchurch, they have employed over 220 people off the job seeker benefit who they find at these work seminars. How can she be confident then that increasing benefit sanctions will support people and to secure sustainable employment when MSD does not know if any of the people attending work seminars to avoid sanctions actually, as a direct result, get a job, not just an interview? Mr Speaker, uh, when, when job seekers come into uh, the range of seminars that are available, formal and informal, in work and income offices up and down this country, they are getting assistance with interview techniques, they are uh, getting connected to employers, uh, they are getting assistance with CVs, uh, for some of them uh, it's getting them on the path to getting a driver's licence. These are practical things that address the barriers that some people face um, on their path to employment. There is not one thing that will support, unfortunately, the 190,000 that are on the job seeker benefit currently. We are doing everything we can. Yesterday was a first important step in the reset of the welfare system to support more people off welfare and into work. Uh, and obligations and consequences are part of that. If she is unable to name direct di related outcomes to attending work seminars, to people getting a job, that she just wants to punish people further into poverty by increasing sanctions for not engaging with workshops that have no evidence of working. Mr Speaker, I've given multiple examples today. I've got a list of others if, if, if the House would like me to go through them. But the reality is when someone is on a path to work, there are sensible, practical things they need to do. One of them is having a CV. One of them is knowing what to do in an interview. One of them might be to go on and do some further training. One of them is to actually meet employees uh, and to connect with them to then be offered a position that leads to a job. I've given the example of one employer alone in Christchurch, 220 job seekers that that business has taken on. Uh, it is only fair to workers all over New Zealand that those that they are supporting on the welfare system, uh, they know they are doing their bit to support them to find work. Turning up to a seminar, getting support and assistance face to face with a great team of work and income uh, workers is a great step. Just to wait for a bit of silence. Does the Minister disagree then with MSD officials who told Select Committee that outcomes are not measured? I disagree that the total number of outcomes from work seminars across the country is not collated centrally. That is the point that I made in my primary and answer. How does she know she um, work? But, of course, we are very excited about the opportunity with this coalition government to get more of the 190,000 New Zealanders uh, who are currently on the job seeker benefit into work. And particularly, I've got a message for the parents of young people who go on to welfare under the age of 20. We will not sit and let those young people rot on welfare for 24 years. Question number nine. Question number nine in the name of the Honourable Penny Henare. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Health. Is he committed to delivering positive Māori health outcomes 
If so, what are those outcomes? Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the first arm of the question, yes, and to the second arm, I am committed to lifting health outcomes for Māori, and this will be informed by those outcomes identified in Pai 2 and the Whakamaua Action Plan, including outcomes such as diabetes. Uh, thank you. Uh, to the Minister, what percentage of uplifts in Māori immunisation rates has the Minister seen following his $50 million announcement on 21 December last year, and what changes does he expect to see in the 12 months to follow? Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, Mr Speaker, the uh, immunisation project that we announced before Christmas simultaneously was with an announcement around the new immunisation uh, information technology programme, which will give us much more granular and real-time levels of immunisation rates. As a consequence of that, I've been asked for weekly monitoring uh, of those new rates, and we'll be setting what those objectives will be uh, when we announce our priorities and government policy statement. Thank you. Uh, to the Minister, will the Minister meaningfully consider the recommendations following the Waitangi Tribunal's urgent inquiry into the dissolution of Te Aka and will he commit to meeting with the claimants? Uh, thank you. Mr Speaker, uh, those discussions with the Waitangi Tribunal are sub say, but in a very general sense I would say that we'll take on board all discussions and all dialogue from all parties. To the Minister, um, what consultation, if any, has the Minister undertaken with hauora providers, iwi, hapu, community organisations and urban Māori organisations regarding the disestablishment of the Māori Health Authority? Uh, thank you. Mr Speaker, I have discussion, had, had discussions in a general sense uh, with Māori, with iwi leaders and with providers both on Zoom and in person, and uh, we have discussed what a different future might look like with the dissolution of the Māori Health Authority. Um, is this a question or a supplementary? Question, question, sir. Supplementary? Question. Right, primary. Okay. Right, right, good. Question number 10. <laughs> Joseph Mooney. <laughs> thank, thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Social Development and Employment. What actions, if any, has she taken to date that aim to reduce welfare dependency in New Zealand? Mr Speaker. Our coalition government is not prepared to accept the welfare system we inherited where work-ready job seekers were forecast to spend on average 13 years on a benefit and teenagers could become trapped on welfare for 24 years of their working lives. We have higher aspirations for the prospects of New Zealanders. So last Friday I formalised with the Ministry of Social Development our government's view that all existing obligations and sanctions are applied. If job seekers fail to attend job interviews, complete their pre-employment tasks or take or don't take available work, consequences should be applied. Yesterday I also announced that from June, new work check-ins will begin for job seekers so that we can better support people to shift into work. Supplementary. Why has the government taken these first steps to the welfare system? Mr Speaker, New Zealanders are better off in work if they can work. Work improves financial independence as well as their social and health outcomes. Unfortunately, the number of people on the job seeker benefit has increased by 70,000 during the past six years, while sanctions applied for breaches of work obligations decreased by 35,259. Sanctions are one part of the toolkit in the welfare system. Because people are better off in work, we want to ensure that the welfare system motivates people to move into available jobs. Right. Supplementary. What is the purpose of the work chickens the Minister had announced as the first steps of the Government's reset of the welfare system? The number of people who have spent longer than one year on the job seeker benefit has increased by 40,000 by September 2017. Oh, 
Vicious cycles, 40,000. Vicious cycles of welfare dependency trap adults and children in hardship and erode New Zealanders' potential. This government wants a more proactive welfare system that ensures people are making good progress to become work ready. The check-ins will provide a way to see if job seekers have been fulfilling their obligations, such as making regular job applications, as well as ensuring they are getting effective support to help them shift into work. Supplementary. Who will be required to attend the work check-ins? Mr Speaker, people who have been on the job seeker benefit for six months will be eligible for the proactive work check-ins. The longer people spend on benefits, the harder it is to re-enter the workforce. That's right. We will not stand by and you see New Zealanders' potential go to waste. By intervening earlier, we can reduce the risk of people becoming dependent on welfare long term and help them experience the independence and opportunities that work provides. Yeah, yeah. Question number 11, the name of the Honourable James Shaw. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And my question is to the Minister responsible for RMA reform. Does he stand by his statement in relation to the government's proposed approach to fast-track consenting that, quote, this is not new, by the way, because the COVID fast-track legislation also listed projects in the legislation and also set up a process for ministers to refer projects to an expert consenting panel? The Honourable Chris Bishop. Yes. Can he confirm that a fundamental difference to the COVID-19 fast-track legislation is that under the proposed new legislation, the ultimate power to approve listed projects will lie with ministers rather than with an expert consenting panel? Uh, well, final uh, design parameters of the scheme are yet to be confirmed by Cabinet, and when the bill is ready for tabling and release, um, it will be done. Is he concerned uh, that granting ministers the power to fast-track consents for projects, including those that have previously been declined under the existing COVID legislation because of environmental risk, is, in the words of the CEO of the Environmental Defence Society, quote, a return to the use of unbridled executive power that we thought that we had left behind, end quote? Uh, no, and I'm not going to take lectures from Gary Taylor around what we should or shouldn't do in this country. What I am concerned about in this country is that the time it's taken to consent major infrastructure has doubled in the last five years, and we now spend as a country one point. It is true. It, it's a report from the. It's a report from the. I'm quoting a report from an entity set up by the last government, the Infrastructure Commission. So, the member might want to say it's not true, but it's a publicly available report from Sense Partners. What I am concerned about uh, is that we spend $1.3 billion as a year in this country consenting <laughs> infrastructure, by most measures some of the most expensive consenting processes in the developed world. I want more renewable energy in this country and I want to build roads for the future and public transport projects, but it is near impossible to do things expeditiously, efficiently uh, in a cost-effective way because of the RMA. We're going to fix it. Can you confirm that there are no fewer than 59 projects currently proposed for inclusion in the primary legislation? Uh, I think it's actually more than 59, to be honest, because um, we are looking at a vast array of projects, uh, and the precise list and exactly how that, uh, those processes work with the uh, process we're setting up uh, will be a decision for Cabinet, uh, and uh, it's not too far away. 
The uh, Honourable Chan Jones. He doesn't need those crutches now. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Speaker. To the Minister, can the Minister confirm during that brief period of enlightenment when the earlier bill was passed, there were actual projects in the bill that were consented by Parliament? Uh, yes, indeed, uh, Mr. Speaker. I can confirm that. There were uh, 17 listed projects in the COVID uh, fast track uh, bill passed by the last Parliament. Te Ana Tupua, the Naronga to Batoni Shared Path, uh, Wellington Metro upgrades, uh, Papakura to Pukekohe Rail electrification, which I know Judith Collins is a big fan of, Britomart Station Eastern upgrade, uh, various resident, Unitec residential development, Papakainga development in Kaitai, and more housing up far north, which is everyone supports. In fact, there are four Papakainga developments on this list, Mr. Uh, sorry. Six Papakainga developments on this list. Papakura to Drury South State Highway 1 improvements, uh, a water storage reservoir in Kaikohi, uh, Queenstown Arterials project, a whole range of uh, proposals uh, that were supported by the previous government. And we are adopting a similar uh, procedure with this fast track legislation and going further and faster to make sure we can get stuff done in this country. Will he rule out including the Takuha coal mine in the list of projects to be approved in the primary legislation? Well, just decisions as to what projects will be included in the legislation are matters for Cabinet. So, given the extraordinary powers that have been granted to ministers in this legislation, what measures is he taking to ensure that the list of projects that ministers approve for inclusion in the legislation are not connected to people or organisations that are significant donors to coalition parties? Well, the uh, hang on, hang on a minute. Uh, not? Just, uh, just reword the question, because you can't put an inference in a question like that. Well, to the point of what, Mr. Speaker? Yes. Uh, I wasn't inferring. I was asking the minister, who's responsible for drafting the legislation, given given that this legislation grants extraordinary powers that we haven't seen in four decades to ministers to personally approve projects. I'm asking what measures he's, he's looking at to ensure that there is accountability. Well, the problem I mean, that... is, uh, Mr. Shaw, uh, the Honourable James Shaw, is that the Minister started his questions by saying that the bill is not yet in a form that could be uh, anything asserted against it. Well, that, and that's my point, is that in the design stage of the legislation, surely it is incumbent upon the Minister at that point, rather than after the legislation has been drafted, uh, to ensure well, that there well, are appropriate well, checks and balances. Have, have another crack at asking, asking the question. Um, thank you, Mr Speaker. In a slightly different way. Well, Mr Speaker, uh, can the Minister, uh, given the extraordinary powers that have been granted to Ministers to approve projects in the primary legislation without uh, the ability of an expert consenting panel to decline those projects, uh, what measures is he taking to ensure that there are no conflicts of interest? Well, there's a variety of uh, uh, hypotheses in, the, in that question which uh, may or may not turn out to be true. The member will have to wait for the final design of the uh, fast-track procedure. Uh, but as I've said twice now in response to previous questions, there are a variety of mechanisms uh, through the Cabinet process and the parliamentary process and electoral law processes designed to make sure that the type of inferences or type of implications, sorry, that the member is making are handled appropriately. Question number 12, in the name of Tangi Utakiri. Kia ora, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Transport. Does he stand by all his statements and actions? 
Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, yes, including my statement that Auckland Light Rail was an irresponsible project that would have cost taxpayers up to $29.2 billion and which the last government failed to deliver a single metre of track on despite spending $228 million on this project. We've already scrapped this wasteful project which is starting to address the last government's $200 billion funding gap in the transport budget. Hmm. How does he reconcile his statement that he will not tax Aucklanders an additional 11.5 cents per litre on fuel to fund more cycle lanes, red light cameras, speed bumps and lowering speed limits across the city when Auckland Council information shows that of the total funding available for regional fuel tax projects, safety and active transport initiatives represented just 16% of the regional fuel tax project spending? Well, Mr Speaker, it's great to be talking about the regional fuel tax again in Parliament and how we're going to lower the cost of living for Aucklanders. Uh, and, I and, I take the and I make the point to the member, there are a range of categories uh, which we will not be funding, which include uh, bus priority improvements, bus infrastructure, uh, the cycling and the speed bump category, which comes under road safety and active transport, where we, but we will be making sure that the remaining funding goes towards the projects which the Mayor and I have discussed, which includes the Eastern Busway, the City Rail Link and local roading improvements. Hmm. Why does the Minister consider it appropriate to rush through a bill under urgency to cancel the very revenue stream for a number of projects that Aucklanders are relying on, projects that Auckland Council have determined will meet the pressing needs that Auckland faces now and into the future without any commitment to any additional new funding? Well, Mr Speaker, this might sound really, really radical, but we went to the election with a campaign promise. Uh, Aucklanders overwhelmingly voted for the coalition government and we're delivering it. Why won't the Minister give any certainty around what additional government funding he will give to meet the clear shortfall that he has now left to Auckland Council to deliver on the very projects that they need? Well, we've said the other projects are not priorities uh, for this government, but we will ensure the remaining funding over two years' worth of regional fuel tax money, tax from Aucklanders sitting in a bank account, will go towards delivering and completing the Eastern Busway, the City Rail Link trains and stabling, and local roading upgrades. Supplementary uh, question, Shannon Hilbert. Does the Minister accept that Aucklanders saving 11.5 cents per litre means very little to them if they then face significant thousands of dollars in rates increases to fund investment in vital transport and water infrastructure projects? Or is he quite happy to continue to pull the rug out from under Mayor, Mayor Wayne Brown? Well, Mr Speaker, the Aucklanders, as I said, they overwhelmingly voted for the coalition government. We are delivering on our promises to provide cost of living uh, relief for the motorists of Aucklanders, and I'm not going to be lectured from a government over there which wants to spend 11 points, uh, opposition wants to spend 11.5 cents per litre on speed bumps. Will he guarantee right here, right now, that all stages of the Eastern Busway and the Glenvar Road, East Coast Road adjustment projects will be completed, and if not, why not? 
Well, we are allocating the money, the remaining $340 million, plus the money that will be collected between now and the 1st of July, to those projects to make sure they are being delivered. Supplementary question, the Honourable Christopher Bishop. Does the Minister agree that it is unusual to see a government, particularly in transport in light of recent history, uh, promise something and then actually deliver it? <laughs> well, as I said, Mr. No, thank you. Mr Speaker, I seek leave to table a not publicly available uh, table from Auckland Council that shows that the total percentage of safety and active transport initiatives make up 16 per cent of regional fuel tax enabled project spending. Why is it not publicly available? I am advised that it is not publicly available. It has been uh, obtained from me. How did you get it? Obtained by Auckland Council. Well, the Minister earlier last week asked Auckland Council to get the information, so I did. Leave us thought. Is there any objection? Your appears to be done. That concludes oral questions.